This is the word of the Lord. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Yet some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the, Jew, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders and the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that this is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with with him about their own religion and about the, the dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high ranking of the officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought to not live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, 
but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and where, they, when they were, and where they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people 
and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time along, I pray, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these changes. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with him. Then they left the room. And while talking with one another, they said, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thanks, Carl. Just I wasn't going to make it through the sermon without moving that. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your grace to us, that you speak uh, to us in your word and uh, that you also speak through us as you spoke through a man like Paul. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me now uh, and that you would give us ears to hear, to receive your words and to believe them. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, often uh, life follows a fairly predictable pattern. Uh, day to day, week to week, things are pretty regular. My life is uh, l- like clockwork uh, from day to day, from hour to hour. Everything is exactly the same every day at exactly the right moment. Uh, but sometimes, every now and again, a great opportunity from out of the blue drops in your lap. Uh, a once in a lifetime kind of thing. When I was working as an engineer, one of my colleagues uh, there was in a band. Uh, they weren't They weren't a famous band or anything like that. But then one day, all of a sudden, out of the blue, they found themselves on a plane flying to Iraq to play for the troops in Iraq. One of the other bands had uh, dropped out, and uh, they'd been asked instead uh, if they would go. And so they flew over there uh, and played for our our soldiers. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience, uh, something that doesn't come up very often. Uh, Life sometimes does that. Unexpected job offers, uh, the sudden opportunity to visit a part of the world that you'd never thought that you'd make it to, an encounter with someone famous that you always wanted to meet. But this chapter of Acts shows us an incredible opportunity of a different kind. Paul is brought before some of the high-profile rulers of his day. He's brought as a prisoner and he gets the chance to say whatever it is that he wants And what does he use the opportunity for? He uses the opportunity to preach the gospel. To set the scene, a few chapters ago Paul was arrested and over the chapters since then he's had various opportunities to defend himself. He got to speak to the Jewish leaders. In the last chapter he got to speak before the Roman ruler Felix. And then in this chapter he defends himself before Festus and some 
other rulers. But Festus, as chapter 25 begins, is taking over from Felix. And with the change of government, Paul's enemies see a kind of opportunity to hatch a plan. They hatch a plan to try and kill Paul. They appear before Festus and they bring charges against Paul. They want Paul, you see, to be transferred to Jerusalem. And the hope is that on the way, they can ambush uh, him and they can kill him. But uh, Festus invites them instead to Caesarea where Paul is being held. Uh, They go along. When they arrive, they bring their charges again. They can't prove anything, of course, but that doesn't matter. Uh, Festus is keen to uh, do them a favour. Uh, and Paul, it seems, gets wind of, uh, of what uh, is afoot and so decides to ramp things up a notch. He takes the opportunity, Paul does, to raise the stakes and he says in verse 10, I'm standing now before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul says, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. Uh, I don't want to stand trial there uh, in front of the Jews. I want to go to Rome and I want to stand trial before Caesar. It helps to know at this time, uh, actually, that the Caesar who was ruling was Nero. Although there was no hint, it seems, at this stage of what was to happen a few years later in terms of the persecution of the Christians. But why does Paul appeal to Caesar? That choice becomes even stranger as the chapter goes on because it becomes clear that the things which Paul is accused of aren't really Roman crimes. Festus says to Agrippa later on that the Jews had come to him uh, with all these crimes against Paul. Uh, They were points of dispute about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. (laughs) Festus says, I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. He doesn't know what to do. And a little bit later on, at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 26, all the officials agree that Paul has done nothing wrong. And Agrippa even says to Festus in verse 32, this man could have been set free if he hadn't have appealed to Caesar. It's because of his appeal to Caesar that Paul can't be freed. It looks as though Paul has shot himself in the foot. (laughs) What an idiot. If only he'd kept his mouth shut, he would have been free to go home. But I think Paul has a more cunning plan than anyone here had even thought of. I think that becomes clear as the chapter goes on. And as we see in chapter 26, him using his speech before Agrippa, that other Roman ruler, or that Jewish ruler under Roman authority, when he uses that speech before Agrippa to try and convert him. In chapter 26, verse 28, Agrippa asks Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul's supposed to be giving his defense of why he should be set free, and Agrippa Agrippa sees straight through it. He sees that he's trying to uh, preach the gospel. Paul's appeal to Caesar is not a badly calculated and unnecessary gamble. It's motivated motivated by his desire for the gospel to reach everywhere, even to reach into the highest corridors of power, even to reach the Caesar. 
This appeal to Caesar is a chance for the gospel to be heard at the very top. In Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord had appeared to Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified to, uh, about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In other words, it seems as though in this chapter, Paul sees this appeal to Caesar as an opportunity to fulfill God's commission to preach the gospel in Rome. It's a move of incredible boldness and calculation. Paul prioritizes gospel mission, uh, mission over personal freedom. He could have been set free. I appeal to Caesar. He would rather get, to the, get the gospel to the emperor than enjoy a quiet night at home with friends. Paul's not just sitting back and waiting to see what unfolds, but he's planning and working to create gospel opportunities. And I think it's a wonderful example of what mission-mindedness and gospel focus looks like in the Christian life. Being uh, mission-minded and gospel focused isn't only about being imprisoned and appealing for opportunities to preach the gospel in unlikely places, It's also about the priorities of the long, slow haul of life. Paul's gospel focus here is just one expression of a broader way of life in which he didn't consider his life worth anything to him, remember, except he could finish the task that the Lord Jesus had given to him, preaching the gospel. There are some people uh, in this church who are great role models of that kind of attitude, are people who are always looking to create opportunities for the gospel rather than just waiting for them to turn up. Uh, They're always looking to be on the front foot. When you talk to them and you hear about what they've done during the week, there's always a story about what they've been doing. They're always looking to develop a relationship, always looking for a new opportunity, always willing to do their bit uh, in the church to support the ministries to other people in the church and outside the church in order to see people come to Christ and build up in Christ. They're people who, like Paul, order their lives by the gospel rather than their personal safety and their personal comfort. Uh, I know another model of that kind of life which has had a profound impact on me. Uh, It's had a profound impact on me because I've lived with that model and that example for 37 years. Uh, My uh, my father is a remarkable model uh, of this kind of gospel focus uh, and devotion to serving Jesus. Uh, My father was a school principal uh, for most of my life, uh, which I think is probably the hardest job out there. Maybe that's not true, but it's close to, I think. Uh, It's incredibly time-consuming Uh, And it's incredibly stressful because you're looking after everybody's children uh, and people are very protective of their children. My memory of uh, of growing up is of my father heading off to work to start at 8 o'clock, getting home just before dinner at 6. At 7.30 most nights of the week, he'd either be off to a meeting uh, or in his study working probably till 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Uh, A few years ago, I was talking to my dad about how people seem to be so busy that it's hard to get people to volunteer for things and to commit to things in church. Uh, And I said, 
I said, I don't know what to do. Uh, and he said, I'll never forget what he said. He said, I, I always thought that if there wasn't any room in my life to be serving the church, there was something wrong. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? <laughs> he was being flogged to death. Serving a school ministry. And he thought that if there wasn't time to serve the church, that something was wrong in his life. He served as an elder in the church. He played piano often <coughs> often every second week, twice a Sunday. When he wasn't doing that, he was doing the sound. He would preach from time to time. And he would almost always turn up to the working bees. He's just turned 70. We celebrated his birthday last year. He still serves as an elder in the church. He still plays music most Sundays and turns up an hour before church for practice. He still does the sound. He helps out at the Holiday Kids Club. Although working with kids isn't one of his strengths. He leads a growth group and is part of another he mentors at least one person one-on-one. -on -one. He's the chairman of a theological college, the vice chairman of a Christian superannuation fund. He's on virtually every denominational committee of the Christian Reformed Churches, and that's not an overstatement. He's serving on the board of his local Christian school. He and mum spent five months last year commuting between Sydney and Geelong, living in a caravan, while he worked as the interim business manager for the college of which he's the chairman. More recently, the college was, out, was without a groundsman and a cleaner, and so he went to do that. Nothing was below or is below his effort or service of the church. If anyone ever had the right to say, I'm too busy, I'd like a rest, in my opinion, it was him. But apart from the odd occasion, and there were occasions, he has rarely taken a rest from serving Jesus or putting the gospel first. Which is not to say that our family life languished, not at all. On the contrary, we always had dinner together, we always spent Sunday together, but mum and dad took us on mission with them. When the church collected for the Red Shield appeal, we went out as a family together to do it. When Dad played the piano in church, I and my sister and brother were often playing there with him. When Dad went to church and school working bees, I'd always go too. I remember one period of our lives where there was a man in the church who went bankrupt and the church pitched in to renovate a house which had been fire damaged. That was all he could afford to live in. And Saturday after Saturday, for what must have been months, we'd turn up at the end of a busy week, along with other people from the church, and we'd work through the day, from early in the morning until the end of the day, to try and make this man's house livable. He and Mum, uh, like Paul, set a model of mission-mindedness and gospel focus which I and my brothers and sisters have absorbed.
And the tragedy, I think, is that so many of us pull back from gospel work and pull back from gospel mission to focus on our families or our marriages, and the tragic result is often the complete opposite of what we ever intended. That is, we never say that God or the gospel is unimportant, but our actions testify every day of our lives for 50 years. We live a life of disinterest in the church. We live a life disengaged from the church, and then we're shocked and surprised when our children turn 18 and are disengaged and disinterested in the church. But actually, that's the model that we've set for them for 50 years, for 20 years. What? What's that got to do with Paul's appeal to Caesar? Well, it has this to do with it. It would be a tragedy to look at Paul's mission-mindedness here and think, well, one day when I'm in prison and have an opportunity for the gospel, I'll take it. One day if I'm in prison and someone says, do you want to speak to these religious leaders? Well, then I'll take the opportunity. It would be a mistake to think that that's what this chapter is about. That's not what this is about. No, the opportunity for serving Jesus sacrificially and completely exists today. In one sense, Paul's incredible opportunity to preach the gospel in Rome came out of the blue. It came through the machinations of other people. But in another sense, it's entirely the result of his own strategizing, thinking, planning and working out ways that he can best maximize what's going on for the advance of the gospel. It's a remarkable opportunity because of the sovereignty of God and because of Paul's mission-mindedness and gospel commitment. So Paul appeals to Caesar because the gospel is on his heart. Well, Festus is at a loss to know what to do. Uh, He can hardly send Paul to the emperor without any real charges against him. That wouldn't look good. He says in verse 27 of chapter 25, I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. He's probably right. He may well have lost his job and even his life. Uh, Thankfully, Agrippa turns up and uh, Festus asks for help. And Agrippa decides that the best course of action is uh, for them to sit down and to hear Paul uh, and what he has to say for himself. Uh, And so one of the most extraordinary opportunities for gospel witness uh, unfolds. We're told in verse 23, The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers uh, and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So we have here King Agrippa, the military officials, the prominent people from the city, and they've come to hear Paul speak with complete freedom about why he's been arrested. And Paul takes the opportunity with both hands. Like we saw last week when Steve was preaching, Paul tells his conversion story. But his point is not merely to tell the story, but to defend the resurrection. The resurrection is at the heart here of his account because he's on trial for the resurrection. Chapter 26, verse 7, King Agrippa, it's because of this hope, that is, the hope of the resurrection, that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And so in what follows, Paul defends the message of the resurrection, and he does that in four ways. First, he says that the hope of the resurrection is in line with what God promised uh, in the Old Testament. 
Chapter 26, verse 4. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country, also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Paul was a good Jew, that's what he's saying. And then he goes on, and now it's because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. Agrippa is a Jew, and presumably he has some commitment to the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul is trying to show him that he hasn't abandoned what God said in the Old Testament, but is actually uh, in line with all that. He says the hope of the resurrection is not a denial of the Old Testament, but a fulfillment. It's the hope which God promised our ancestors. Uh, He repeats the idea later in the chapter, verse 22. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Uh, The message of the resurrection is in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Daniel where it speaks about resurrection to life and resurrection to judgment. Job speaks about his confidence that in his flesh he will see God even after he is dead and buried. The resurrection was not a new idea, but one anchored in the Old Testament scriptures. If anything was new about the idea of the resurrection, it was that the future hope of the resurrection had broken into history in the person of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection was a bringing forward of the resurrection of all people. Uh, at the end of time. Second Paul says that the resurrection uh, was not, the idea of resurrection is in itself not incredible. He uh, asks in verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? It's a legitimate question. Uh, In Paul's context, the question he's asking is, why if you believe God will raise the dead, if you believe in that idea, if you believe that God said it in the Old Testament and even did it in the Old Testament in the life of Elijah, uh, why, if you believe God can raise the dead, why do you think it's ridiculous that he would do that in the life of Jesus? In our day, however, I think the question takes on a different complexion. That is, if, God, if the God of the Bible exists, why should it be implausible that he should raise the dead? Uh, The plausibility of resurrection depends on your worldview. So if you reject the idea of a creator God and if you believe in just a physical universe, uh, then resurrection by definition is impossible. It doesn't happen. But not, uh, it should be said, on the basis of reason per se. You're not rejecting it on the basis of reason, but on the basis of the presuppositions, the ideas that you've already decided are reasonable or aren't reasonable. Uh, If, on the other hand, you suppose for a moment that the God of the Bible exists, that there's a God who made everything, uh, who upholds everything at every moment, then the idea of resurrection is not only possible, uh, but it's plausible. And just from a purely analytic point of view, a more sophisticated approach to the question is not to rule in or out resurrection from the start, which I think is what most people do, but to say, okay, if Jesus really has 
been raised from the dead, how could I know that that was true? What kind of evidence would I be looking for to establish whether that was true or not? And as the historian John Dixon has argued convincingly, I think, we have the kind of evidence that you would expect a resurrection to leave behind. Paul shows that the resurrection of Jesus is in line with the Old Testament uh, and he shows that it's not inherently implausible. Third, he describes his own encounter with the resurrected Jesus. In verse 9 and following, he describes how he'd been an opponent of Jesus, like Agrippa was. He's trying to identify with Agrippa. He'd put Christians in prison. He'd voted for them to be put to death. What was it that made Paul change direction so radically? Paul says it was his encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says in verse 13, About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Meeting the risen Jesus changed everything for Paul. How how could it not change it? He'd he'd had doubts about whether Jesus had really risen from the dead and he met Jesus. His doubts and opposition to Jesus vanished when he met Jesus and when he became a witness to the resurrection. Finally, Paul shows how the resurrection changes everything about life. He says in verse 18 that he was sent by God to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins in the place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The resurrection of Jesus opens the way for others to share in God's rescue plan for the world. The resurrection of Jesus brings light into darkness. It brings people out of slavery to Satan and evil into joyful obedience to God. It brings people into God's family and God's special people set aside for eternity with God. If Jesus has really risen from the dead, that changes everything. That changes the meaning of your life and my life. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then that means death is not the end. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then that means that God is real. If Jesus has risen from the dead, that means that the good news is real, that the gospel is real, that there's, that there's hope for us with God. If Jesus has risen from the dead, you can see why Paul was willing to do anything to get the gospel out there. Because it was a message that changed people's lives. That brought them from darkness to light. From death to life. From slavery to Satan. To freedom in the power of God. But resurrection also brings obligations in verse 20. Paul says... First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached. What did you preach, Paul? I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. The resurrection not only brings with it a message of hope, but a call to obedience, a call to turn to God. 
are called to leave the way that we were going, to leave our own way, following our own desires, doing what we wanted rather than what God wanted. The resurrection calls us to leave that way and to go God's way, to leave the way of sin and to cling on to Jesus. If Jesus has really risen from the dead, then you and I need to pay attention to who he is. Because if Jesus has risen from the dead, then that means that he's God's king and ruler. Then that means that that Jesus has the power over life and death. That means that Jesus is the most extraordinary person who's ever lived. And he's worth knowing. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then we ought to give up our lives and follow him. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then as Paul realised, our life no longer belongs to us. It belongs to our risen Saviour and Lord. You see, the message of the resurrection was not only Paul's message. It was his way of life. It was his reason for being. It was the thing which determined everything about his life and his ministry. To know about the resurrection of Jesus and even to believe that it's real is not enough. You need to know Jesus and to trust him and to give your life up to him and to say to Jesus, here's my life. It doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to you. You've bought it. You bought it on a cross and in a tomb. You bought it when you were raised from the dead. So Paul plots to make the gospel known in the corridors of power. And he takes an extraordinary opportunity to preach the gospel the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because it's such a well-crafted account uh, of the gospel, you might expect that Agrippa and the others would be instantly converted. But actually, that doesn't happen. Uh, Paul's message is rejected. Having heard Paul's testimony to the gospel, Agrippa is disinterested, and Festus thinks that Paul is insane. He says in verse 24, "'You're out of your mind,' Paul, he shouted, Your great learning is driving you insane. The anti-supernaturalism of our day is not new. Uh, It gripped the hearts of people in Paul's day as well. Agrippa couldn't cope with the idea of the resurrection. You're insane, Paul. You're an idiot. We tend to de-supernaturalise the gospel. That's a made-up word. Uh, We de-supernaturalise the gospel. That is... We tell people how good the gospel will make their life, how they'll be happy, how they won't feel guilty, how they won't be afraid of death. But we never mention the fact, which is at the cornerstone of everything that we believe, that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, we're happy even to tell people that Jesus died for them but we never mention that Jesus rose from the dead. If we need courage, it's not only courage to say anything, to say something, but it's the courage to say what we really believe, 
that a man who was crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago was raised to life, that he was seen by loads of people, that he was seen by one of his arch enemies, Paul, who was so convinced by what he saw that his life was totally turned around. And instead of putting others to pri- into prison and condemning them to death, he was put in prison and condemned to death himself. You see, not only is the resurrection of Jesus the most outrageous weapon that we have, it's also the most compelling weapon. The atheist philosopher uh, Luke Ferry writes, thinking particularly of the resurrection, he says, amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. It's at that point uh, that Agrippa asks Paul, do you think that in such a short time that you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Or if you like, what does it matter how much time I have? However long I've got, I'm going to give the gospel a red-hot crack. I'm going to give it a go. And I'll pray that by God's power, you'll become what I am. Likely or unlikely, Paul says, well, what have I got to lose? Only my head. And that's a good model for us. We had a saying in my growth group last year, uh, embrace the awkward. Uh, It was particularly relevant to me, I think, but it was about trying to get past the awkwardness of some situations in the interest of the gospel. Uh, So like welcoming new people, it can be awkward, but... It's worth embracing the awkwardness to get to the other side. Uh, Or getting to know people who've been part of the church for 30 years and you've never really spoken to them. Uh, It's important to embrace the awkwardness and to move beyond that. But maybe another helpful saying is this. Embrace the impossible. We talk ourselves out of things because they don't seem like they'll work. And in gospel ministry and in life, that's catastrophic. (laughs) Because almost all of what we're called to do is impossible. Here's the question, I think, that I ask myself, and I think we all need to ask ourselves. If I'd been brought before Agrippa, would I have mentioned the resurrection? Would I have preached the gospel? Or would I have thought to myself, this will never work. I'm just going to try and save my neck. We say to ourselves, this will never work, therefore I'm not going to do it. But I think we need to learn to say with Paul, short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me will become what I am. Short time or long, I'm going to give this a crack. And I'm going to pray that God would use it. You see, if it's not impossible for God to raise the dead, why should it be impossible for God to bring people to faith? through our weak and faltering attempts at speaking about Jesus. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in which we believe and in which we hope that your own son died for our sins to reconcile us to you and was raised from the dead so that we might live for him. Lord, we want to offer up our lives again to you now afresh. Lives captured by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Lives empowered by the same power which raised Christ from the dead. Lives empowered by your Holy Spirit living within us. Lord, we pray that the resurrection would be our message, our means of life, and also our motive. That in everything that we do, the powerful resurrection of Christ would define us, define how we live, define what we live for, define what we do, define the spirit in which we do it. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, that you in your great mercy would honour that and that we would have the privilege to see souls, countless souls, both here and abroad, whose lives are captured by the resurrection as well. People who are dead in sin, but who are made alive in Christ. Oh God, do a powerful work. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.